turned up the radio for company, but there were only call-ins. Whiners, know-it-alls, Christers. An alienated lot. In the depths of his soul, Matthews hated Hampton County. The local press sometimes idealized the place as the Happy Valley. Matthews liked to amuse his friends by calling it the Unhappy Valley, and he had a repertory of cruel, funny anecdotes about it. At the same time, the valley was a particularly easy jurisdiction in which to make a living. His ambitions had faded, and life could be various and perversely satisfying in Hampton. When Matthews launched into his unhappy valley routine, it was his own life and fortunes he was describing, and most days he could tolerate those well enough. In fact, the valley was his native place, and he had been watching it all his life, its preachifying and its secret horrors. The recently arrived professionals, academics, and technologists had brought to Hampton a self-conscious blessed assurance, unaware of the beatings, arson, and murder that thrived in the hills around their white-trimmed shutters. Matthew knew the place's black heart. It was his living. Where the road descended to the river, a mile short of the first covered bridge, there stood a lone wooden tenement, the survivor of a company street of mill houses dating from the industrial age. All its companion houses had burned to the ground years before. Nearly every time Matthews passed the house, he saw children, a squadron of little whitey towheads who, in the time he had lived at the Esquivels, seemed never to change in age or approximate numbers. The house was unpainted, and usually had one of its windows glazed in plastic. Through the sleet, he saw one of the children standing in an open doorway, dressed for a summer afternoon. It was a girl of about ten, in baggy jeans and a yellowing, ragged, hand-me-down T-shirt. She stood absolutely still, indifferent to the stings of the weather, unblinking. She wore a necklace of glass stones and shiny metal, her stare was profound and uneasy-making. He waved to her, and she was gone. When he pulled out to cross the intersection, it was as though she had not been there. He thought perhaps the solitude was finally getting to him, leaving him impulsive and eccentric, even on his sober days. Especially on his sober days, each one marked with small errors of judgment, the sight of children sometimes made him homesick for his married past, getting his son to school, drinking a beer with his wife. During the seventies everyone had said it was a tough time to bring up children. In fact, it went on being that way. The eighties and the nineties were no better. He and his wife had been lucky. Their only boy was sensible and decent, partaking of his mother's rectitude and perhaps a little too much of his own pessimism. So there was that, at least. He called the thing he had pessimism. Halfway up a hillside, a turn-of-the-century Volvo passed him with cheery disregard. Its bumper sticker read, We are one family, the town motto, a reference to the imagined relationship between Hampton's inhabitants and those of the great globe itself, which was displayed in congenial artsy abstract, a smiley face planet Earth, complete with latitudes and longitudes. 
Was it more frightening to raise children in the place Hampton had become? He could hardly say. His perspective was that of a criminal lawyer who knew the annals of wickedness. A couple of miles farther on, Matthews came in sight of town. The famous jail, the red-brick rathouse minarets attached to a new wing of frosted Martian glass, stood beside the river between a pair of old paper mills, whose lofts were now mainly occupied by artists in flight from the city. There were also a few shabby offices, headquarters to some social services organizations. These were relics of the Age of Concern, grown decadent with underfunding, long on ideology, and short on practical solutions. One scarred band specialized in raiding the migrant pickers' cockfights. The crazy poet did children's theater the children dreaded.